This is KMTT, the weekly share in Agadot Chelek. And today we're on Daf Tzadi Aleph and Aleph. Last week, we, uh, the end, the second half of the shiur, we saw a two um, parables, um, or two versions basically of the same story, uh, designed to show, as we explained, that resurrection is in fact not all that incredible. The question that was asked, was asked by the Kesa, was asked by a representative of the Roman civilization, that claimed that resurrection was illogical because it comes from dust, and life cannot come from dust. So the obvious answer, I suppose the typical Jewish answer would be to say, miracles are miracles. You know, you're absolutely right. There's no connection between dust and life. But a miracle is yesh me'ayin. You can create ex nihilo. So you can create life from dust or life from nothing. But in fact, the answers were designed to show that it at least is not it doesn't strain the imagination because I can give you an example. The first example had to do with making something out of water, making something out of dust. All life comes from liquid, comes from, from, from semen, from human, from human liquid. And uh, so resurrection is, is not, less, not less illogical, or not, or not more illogical. The second example is even more interesting, had to do with the breaking of a glass vessel. Glass vessels are made with breath, human breath. And they can be fixed by putting them back into heat and, and blowing them again. So a God's breath, which is the inner essence of human life, uh, what's called in Greek pneuma, or ruach, uh, is, uh, can surely repair the broken vessel. And as I point out, that was a very interesting uh, parable because it relates to death as breaking and resurrection as fixing. Uh, we can continue in that uh, in that vein with the next story found on Sadi Aleph and Aleph, and then we'll see where we go from that. Uh, the following story is told: Hahu, Mina, Amalehu Mina, Rabbi Ami. Usually, the word Min, a heretic, refers to a Jewish heretic. Usually, and Rabbi Ami is a much this is a much later story in the Amoraic period, not in the Tanaic period. Amalehu Mina, Rabbi Ami. Amui to the Shach Vichai. This is the same question that the Roman had asked Rabbi Ishmael. Uh, you say the dead will live, but the dead are dust. And how can life come from dust? So again, he's asking the rational question. Resurrection is irrational. Because life cannot arise from dust. So once again, he answers with a parable. The king told his servants to build a, a palace in a place where there was no available water or, or dirt. And therefore, uh, it's difficult. You have palms making uh, bricks, which are made from, from dirt and from water. They managed to build it. So they built, but then it fell down because it wasn't built well. So he said to them, okay, now go build it, rebuild, in a place where there is available uh, dirt and water. So they were already dejected. Right? They were suffering from depression. And they said, we cannot do it. The king was angry. We're familiar with this kind of thinking. It's similar to the thinking we saw last week. He says to them, if you were able to build poorly, but nonetheless you were able to build in a place where there was no available water or dirt, so now that I'm giving you more natural resources, 
it's even, it's even, uh, it's even more. The, the implication being the same implication, meaning that it's easier to resurrect a dead body than to create a new human being. Even if the body's decayed, but it's, there's still some raw material. Because a human being, there's no raw material at all. Um, but now the story continues. So this is nothing new. This is exactly what the Bata Kesar, the, the, the Roman officer's daughter, had said to the Roman officer. But now he continues. I guess if Ami is saying to the men, if you don't believe, you're not convinced of what I just said, say the Bika, go out into the valley. So he brought him an example, which is not going to be that impressive to us because our scientific education doesn't believe that this thing exists anymore. But nonetheless, I want to consider its implications. He says, go out into the valley. You'll see that mice are generated from dirt. Today he's part flesh, part uh, earth, and tomorrow, he becomes fully flesh. Shema tomal is man ne'uba. You'll say, but this takes a long time. I don't know what that means exactly. Alei laha, go up to the mountain. Reish hayom, ein bo elachi lazon echad. Lemachar yirdub shomim etamri kulo chelzanot. He said, look at snails. Go up into the mountain, you'll see you'll find one snail. But if it rains, it'll be full of snails. He gives him two examples of what we call today spontaneous generation. We have to understand this is not a particular... Chazalic um, Jewish uh, notion. What, the, what they're quoting here is the science of the time. Uh, Greek science, all Greek science, believes in spontaneous generation. I was thought about a lot about spontaneous generation. And the examples are precisely this. One of the most famous examples is, is mice, and uh, another example would be would be snails. They come from from earth, from wet earth. I was thought of the whole theory to explain how it takes place. Uh, based on the four elements and the word I used before, and the existence of numa, of breath, of spirit, of of some other, some other uh, fifth principle. In other words, we're talking science here, not superstition. Just to put it into perspective, the demise of spontaneous generation is officially the final demise of spontaneous generation is officially dated to the 1850s is a mere 170 years ago, 1860s. And the debates in the French Academy of Science between Pasteur and the previous, gener- and the previous opinion. Uh, Pasteur is considered to be the person who buried spontaneous generation. And just to get to put that into perspective, in a recent book published 15 years ago, it was pointed out that basically Pasteur cheated. In other words, not that anyone's willing to go back to the previous science. But uh, 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 he, he didn't, in fact, report on all of the evidence that he himself had accumulated. Uh, spontaneous generation has a long history that says that some life forms, usually simpler life forms, uh, can arise from uh, from non-living material. Just to put that into perspective, again, I can feel the resistance in my audience saying, okay, so we're bringing a proof from, 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 from not true facts, which is true. And I'll talk about nonetheless what I think the significance of the point is, which is more important to us than the science involved. But again, to put a little perspective, and today, in the field of evolutionary biology, not proven, and I can't say even accepted as close to proven, but nonetheless, most 
the, the, the direction of evolutionary biology is to show the possibility of what's called abiogenesis, which is the same thing. They'll distinguish between the, the levels, but abiogenesis to show how early life, molecular biology can arise from non-biological material in order to explain how life arose. And so no one thinks that, that, that mice come from dirt or even that fleas come from sweat. And, but that simple, uh, maybe viruses or simple uh, living cells can arise under certain conditions of methane and electricity in certain building blocks. Uh, that, that, that's the theory which is, uh, in fact, has come back uh, in order to extend evolutionary theory. It's not part of traditional evolution, but in order to extend evolutionary theory back to, back to its beginnings. Um, in, in fact, Darwin was very careful, perhaps for political reasons, to write when he wrote the book about evolution to say that the original origin of life is an act of God. But that species develop one from the other. But nonetheless, you understand why why uh, science has gone in that direction. So we've, we've in fact come back to some extent, the basic principle, which I'll speak about in, in, in immediately, as to can life arise from dirt? In other words, from non-living, can non-living material produce living material? That was the question the Roman asked. Um, the answer is not so obvious that oh, no, that's totally impossible. Nonetheless, what, what's really the point of this of this of this discussion? Um, so first of all, this goes back to the point I made last week. There is, we find in the last few things we've read, a, a approach which is really the opposite of the original approach. The original approach we found when we began this parak was that resurrection is the most anti-natural thing imaginable. After all, we were interested in really asking, why do, not that why do Chazal believe in resurrection, but why do they make it into one of the dogmas of the faith? He who does not believe in resurrection from the Torah has no portion in the world to come. Why is it that important? And and I think the obvious answer was that it's the ultimate demonstration of God's supremacy over nature. It's the ultimate miracle. And perhaps in the medieval sense of the word miracle, in the sense of the Ramans of miracle, something which is the opposite of nature. Something which is exceptional not only in frequency, but in its very basic. It goes against the laws of nature. The last few Medrashim that we've read have, have really been almost in the opposite direction. They've, they've been arguments almost to belittle. Like, why are you so surprised at resurrection? It's just, it's very similar to other things. So the last week we read, it was only parables. You know, like, you can make life out of dust the way that glaciers can make glass vessels from dirt, water, and breath. It's just an example. Now we've gotten somewhat more. What basically the last thing we've read has tried to show is that the basic principle involved is common. might be a big difference between uh, resurrecting dead people from dead bodies and making mice out of dirt, or even, to take a more modern example, simple organic compounds out of uh, non-organic organic chemicals. But in principle... It's not that different. No, it doesn't go against the basic goals of nature. It's not irrational. And what the Roman argument had been was that it's irrational. So again, irrationality doesn't really matter to us if we think that resurrection is irrational, meaning not irrational, but, but not natural. But God can do anything. It's not more 
crazy than creation ex nihilo. So here they're arguing with Romans on the Roman terms. But the fact that it appears one time, two times, three times makes me wonder whether or not there is in fact a, it's not merely polemics against the Romans. What you have here is a argument that says the true nature of the world. Resurrection expresses the true nature of the world and doesn't go against the true nature of the world. So whether or not we're impressed by the examples that are brought here, which are based on Greek science and are no longer acceptable, I think the basic point is something which is interesting. There's an attempt here to argue that resurrection exemplifies, perhaps demonstrates, perhaps shows our belief in what the true nature of the world. Everyone understands that it's extremely rare. In other words, nobody in Chazal time or in our time has witnessed an actual example of human resurrection. So you still have, you still preserve the element of it's something really extraordinary in terms of time and frequency and, and experience. But I think combining that with the, with the arguments given here from the mice, from the snails, from the recreation of glass, from human generation, you still get the point that ultimately you don't understand nature. If you view nature only by what's common, what you see with your eyes, you're missing the point. In fact, what you believe, Romans, that life leads to death, the natural order is decomposition. So here they're trying to show that that's a mistake. That beneath the veneer of decomposition, there exists a principle embedded in nature, I'm sure by God. It comes from God's power. The example of fixing the glass vessels was God's breath. But it's, it's, it's part of nature now in favor of composition, in favor of creating higher forms from simpler forms and not the other way around. This is a, a, a basic, different way of looking at nature. Sometimes, modern and ancient science might lead us to believe, like the law of entropy, that things naturally only decay. It's artificial to find complexity. It's natural to find decomposition. Now, I want to point out, and this may help us understand this point, is that I'm not sure that Chazal thought about nature and God the way they thought about it in the Middle Ages and perhaps in modern times, the way the Bible thought about it. That you have nature, and the hand of God is a miracle, is an exception, is an exception to nature. Chazal, I think, would find the distinction to be somewhat baffling. The hand of God is nature. There could be more obvious natural processes and less obvious natural processes. But what these Midrashim that we read recently are trying to show is that ultimately, beneath the surface, the natural is the power of God. In other words, we have a distinction between artificial and natural. The opposite of natural is artificial. So if you find something that's very complex, the famous example given by uh, by Paley in the 17th century, if you walk in desert and you find what looks like, I'll skip details, it's a watch. You find a round object with two hands moving and they numbers, etc., etc., and it's ticking, etc. So you say, ah, artificial. It must have been created by a person of intelligence, by a human being. Naturally, you don't find things as complex as watches. That distinction is what these 
examples in Chazal, in these Midrashim, is coming to destroy, is coming to overend. Complexity exists in the world, and it is because of God. But it's not a battle between God and the world. The world is God's artificial mechanism. It's artificial in the sense that an intelligence created it, and it's created by God. Uh, and, and so therefore, let's take last week's example. Human beings exist, and they come from water. They come from liquid. So to us, we're not that impressed with that, because we say, what are you looking at? Human beings come from human beings. Your example of human being coming from dust is organic life from inorganic life. Natural sexual generation is is cells from cells. Once we figured out the cellular basis, so the example of water no longer holds holds for us. You're talking about about human cells. So complex cells come from simple cells. So that's all true. But I don't think that undermines the point of Chazal at all, because what Chazal is talking about is, is people, not cells. And and people come from nowhere. Each person is unique. So no, not that they they understood that people come from people. They, they they saw where people come from. They're produced by mothers and my fathers. But what they're saying is a human being. It's a very humanistic way of looking at it. A human being is comes from close to nowhere. So to say that this human being should be able to survive the decomposition of his body is less is less extraordinary than saying that he's produced at all. And the answer is is because what's behind it is. That's the way God made the universe. God made the universe to produce more people. And they produce from parents. And they also produce from themselves. Therefore, their life, their life perseveres. And I want to remind us of something we read two or three weeks ago, which I think is what began this, uh, this new approach, was the Pasuk, Human life regenerates itself because it's the Veik Bashem, because it's cleaving onto God. So on the contrary, as opposed to the moment of thought that said that life being the most complicated and therefore the most delicate thing, so it would fall apart eventually. What Chazal is saying here is that the world exists because of God and life is closer to the source than other things. Mountains may decay, but why should life decay? You say, well, we see it decays. The answer is resurrection. It doesn't quite decay as much as you think. Okay, that ends this series of uh, of uh, discussions. In fact, there is one more, but it has nothing to add. It's just an introduction to something else. Therefore, we now continue in the middle of Tzadi Alpha Mudalef. Amalei hahu mina legevia ben pesisa. We have a discussion between the min, the heretic, and a man named Gevia ben ben pesisa. This presumably is not his real name. Uh, Gevia here refers to the fact that he was a hunchback. He had a gova. He had a hump. Gevia means he was called the hump. Um, and he's a character who we'll meet you read about, a very clever character, has a number of stories told about him. Uh, but he was physically disformed. He was a hunchback. So the heretic said to him, Vailuchon Chavayaya. Uh, he calls Gevia and the people he represents, rabbinic Jews, Chayavaya, which means Mishaim, it means evildoers, people who are chaya, people who are guilty. So he's not just defending his own heresy, he's saying your belief is evil, it's corrupt. In fact, you believe in resurrection. The Amriton Meitin Chayin. 
you say the dead will come to life. He's not just, he's not just disagreeing. He's saying that's a corrupt belief. The Chayin Meiti, the Meiti Chayin, we see that live people die. That's the natural order. It's the same argument. That's the natural order. The Chayin Meiti, all live people die. And you say dead people live. So that was his question. It's an interesting question. Why are they Chayavaya? Maybe they're ignorant. Maybe the Jews are making a mistake, but why are they chayavaya? Why are they guilty of something? This is the argument of the militant rationalist. Right? He's saying that primitive people, people who don't understand the latest scientific discoveries, which I believe in, are in fact corrupt. And, and, and not merely simple. Why? Because chayin meiti, the meiti chayin, all living things die. So can you imagine dead things live? Amalei, he answered him, Vailachon Chayavai. He came back in his own language. Gavir ben Pesiso was not an apologetic person. He said, Oh, woe unto you, the guilty. Because you say that the dead do not live. And I'll tell you why. I'll answer you in your own language. If those who don't exist come to exist, those who do exist, that they continue to exist, is then that more obvious? Because this is more or less the same argument, right? He's saying that human generation is a bigger uh, wonder than human regeneration, resurrection. And again, here the obviously the emphasis is on the unique human being. Those who don't exist come to exist. So biologically, that might not be true. Uh, those who exist today are recombinations of the cells of their parents. There are no new individuals. But of course, individuals, there are, no, there are no new cells, but there are new individuals. So he used to be arguing that, you know, look at the point of view of human beings. Human beings come to exist out of nothing. So surely, uh, again, what the principle is namely the life principle. Life perseveres. If life can start, then it can surely persevere. Uh, the continuation, okay, so that's what, there's nothing new here. But since the story began, let's continue the story. And I, uh, to understand perhaps the way Chazal work. Uh, Amalei, the heretic, was very insulted that Gavir ben Pesisa had called him, uh, wicked, had called him someone who was guilty of something. Chayva, kavitli, ikaimna beitnabach upshitna laakmutach minach. He answered him, as sometimes happens when you've lost an argument. So what do you do? You resort to the violence, or the threat of violence. He said, you're calling me corrupt. If I stand up, I can kick you, and I will straighten out your your crooked back. He basically threatened him. So, So, answered him, go ahead. If you can do that, then you will be called a great doctor and you will receive a great reward, a great payment. Because in fact, there is no cure for, for my condition. Okay, so this can be taken as just merely a story. Uh, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. Chazal, uh, among other things, could be telling a story. There's a typical story of the clever Jew and the not-so-clever opponent, whether it's a guy or a heretic. Uh, Jewish history is full of stories like this. We learned when we were children, very often from the Middle Ages, the clever uh, young rabbi who had to answer the heretic, the bishop, the opponent. And uh, so why not Chazato story like that? Um, the min comes off looking not very not very well. Here. I think there is an added point here. In fact, the conversation reflects 
it does reflect the basic point. And you, clever heretic, who think you understand the relationship of life and death, you in fact cannot cure me. That would be a miracle. You'd, be, you'd receive an immense reward if you could kick the hunchback and straighten out and straighten out his back. Rofei uman tikare. You'd be called an expert, an expert doctor, and you're not. You don't have that ability. And there are a lot of things in life in which you have no control. And the basic point is that God is a much better doctor. He who created the world. And there's all sorts of amazing things, and human beings don't even have a tenth or a, or, a, or a millionth of that ability to play around with those things which God created. Once a person is created, then more or less we're stuck with them. Whereas God creates people out of, again, tipasucha, out of, out of, out of nothing almost. And so you're simply messing out of your, out of your, out of your, uh, you're, you're out of your league. There's the point being that nature, what we call nature, the world as we see it, is far more miraculous, far more marvelous than the artificial world of human beings. God makes things better than people. So it goes back to the, to the, to the central point, is that, that the natural world doesn't follow, in fact, the rules which you're familiar with from your own artificial world, the world of human manufacture, and he's perhaps hinting human reason, is much more limited than the natural world. Because the natural world possesses all sorts of amazing things, and therefore his affection shouldn't be all that incredible. Okay, that's into that story. Since we're on the Gevir ben Psisa, we're not taking a break. We'll come back to resurrection. We haven't finished. But the Gemara tells some Gevir ben Psisa stories. These stories, are, I think, are familiar to most people. We learned them when we were children. And we'll spend a little time examining them. Tanu Rabbanan. Be'esrim ve'abba ben in Megillat Ta'anit, which is a list of days on which one is not allowed to fast, um, so one of those days is the 24th day of Nisan. What happened on that day? So the following story took place. When Alexander uh, conquered the world, so there was now a ruler and a judge for everybody. So there were certain, like a din Torah, certain uh, suits, legal suits took place and uh, against the Jews, against the inhabitants of, of Judea. Uh, B'nai Africa came to uh, charge the Jews before Alexander Mokran. And they claimed the land of Canaan. Havu. Canaan ben Ham. These people from Africa were the sons of Ham, the belief in the ancient world that uh, Africa is inhabited by Hamite tribes, by the children of Ham. And so they asked for Eretz Canaan back from the Jews who are from Shem. And in, in Parshat Noach, Canaan is given to Ham and not to Shem. Amal Lahu, Gavir ben Psisa, he was. Uh, he stood, and he volunteered to be the uh, representative of the Jews in this in this suit before Alexander Mokdon, Alexander of uh, Macedonia. He says, it's good to send me, not you. Don't send one of the famous rabbis, send me. Because if they win, 
אז אמרו, היידות שבאנו ניצחתם. We were able to say, okay, who do you win? You were able to beat Gvir Ben Sisa, the hunchback. ואם אני אנצח אותם, אמרו להם, תורת משה ניצחתם. But if I win, say that it was the Torah that won. Anyhow, they said, okay, do it. What did he do? He said to him, מהיכן אתם מביאים ראייה? He says, how do you know that Karat's Canaan belongs to you? They said, from the Torah. The Torah says that it was given to Ham. אמר להן, אף אני לא אביא לכם רעי בן התורה שנאמר, ויאמר, ארור כנען עבד עבדים יהיה לאחיו. He says, my answer is that in the same parasha it says, cursed is כנען, he will be a slave to his brothers. עבד שכאן לנכסים, עבד למי ונכסים למי. And עבד, a slave who acquires property, to whom belong, the answer is, halachically, legally, belongs to his master. So Shu Kanan was given, the land of Kanan was given to you. But you're slaves. And therefore it belongs to your masters and we are, we are your masters. For the old Ela Sharei Kama Shanim Shalom Abdatunu. And secondly, actually, it says, since I already mentioned that you're slaves, it's been many years since you worked for us, therefore you owe us a lot of money for that as well. Amar lehem Alexandronus Malka Hechziru Lachuva. So Alexander said to them, okay, you have to answer that, uh, that argument. Uh, so they asked for three days, as always happens in these stories, and they spent three days trying to find, they couldn't have any answer. Uh, what happened? So they just ran away, they never came back, and they abandoned their fields, and that year was a sabbatical year, it was a year of Shvi'it, which means that the Jews had very little food. So what happened? Because they abandoned their fields, so the Jews were able to eat the produce, of uh, the fields and the orchards and the orchards and that's how the Jews survived that um, that that um, sabbatical year that 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 Shanat Shemitah okay clever story uh, there'd be nothing wrong with saying clever story and simply moving on uh, but I suspect that we should try to understand what's the point of the story as well why Chazal telling the story uh, we have here the familiar argument mentioned more or less by the very first Rashi in the Torah that Somebody comes and says, we've stolen Eretz Yisrael. This is better than the general argument of Rashi that the Umot HaOlam say you've stolen Eretz Yisrael. Here, in fact, the Torah says it belongs to these people. Eretz Canaan belongs to Canaan. And Canaan is not the Jews. What's the answer given by Rashi in the beginning of the Torah? God giveth, God taketh. God gave it to them. But you can take it. It was, on, it was only this because God gave it to them. <coughs> God gave it out. If God gave it, he goes to take it back. He took it from them and gave it to the Jews. The answer here is somewhat different. The answer here says it was never really given to them. It was given to them, but they are slaves. And therefore it belongs legally from the very beginning. It belongs to <coughs> the master of the slaves, which it doesn't say it's the Jews. It says that it's Echav. It's both Shem and Yefet. Okay, but it's not you. So therefore the Jews represent the, the masters in this case. This answer is, is strategically different than, than the answer given by Rashi. It's not arbitrary. Rashi's answer says God can give it to anybody he wants. This answer says when it was given to you, you weren't just by accident slaves. Why are you slaves? You're slaves because your father Ham and Canaan sinned and therefore they were punished, they were disgraced, they were penalized by Noah. 
So here we have the idea, which is, I think, very basic. It's, it's, it's explicit in the Torah. That says that the land is taken from Canaan, not arbitrarily, but because they've sinned. As the Pasuk in Bereshit says about Avam Avinu, that it doesn't belong to Avam yet, because lo shalem avona emori. Because the sin of the Emory had not, was not full. And therefore they hadn't lost the land yet. And the idea behind it is again something which is explicit in Parshat Achimot. God says to the Jews, remember, before you came to Eretz Israel, there were the Knani there. And they were destroyed because of their sins. And why do you have to remember that? Because when you get Eretz Israel, you can also lose it because of your sins. In other words, it's not arbitrary, it's moral. Who gets the land depends really on your, on your behavior. And that's really the point. In this particular case, that allowed the Jews to win. But there's a certain threat, implicit, in the argument. Avur Canaan, Canaan became a slave and therefore someone else acquired the land through him, but only because of the moral distinction between Canaan and the masters. The masters are tzaddikim and the slaves are of a shame. And this is carried out by the, the poignant irony of the final point. It's Shemitah. It's a sabbatical year. And the Jews are obeying the law. This is the law of Eretz Israel. It's the local constitutional law. As Rabbi points out, Eretz Israel belongs to God and therefore has special laws. And one of the special laws is you don't work in the seventh year, and the point of that particular law is, because the land belongs to God. The Jews are in fact obeying that law, and that's why they have no food. And then, it turns out that, where they get their food from? Also from Benecha. Because they've run away, they were afraid of Alexander Mokdan, they've taken off, they've run away from the land, and therefore they wind up, uh, it turns out that the Jews in, in, in get, get their food as well. Again, the point being that, you win both the general argument, who gets Eretz Israel, and the extra payoff, because you obey the law, because you are tzaddikim, because you understand God's relationship to Eretz Israel, and you fulfill it. And those who lose are those who, in ancient, 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 ancient times, the times of Noah, they did the sin that they did then, the sin of Ham, to his father Noah. And now, because you had the chutzpah to come and uh, bring this ridiculous suit, and therefore you wound up in purely pragmatic terms because of your fear of the wrath of, uh, of Alexander the Conqueror, and therefore you wound up paying us again. Not merely did you lose your land, but you even provided us the sustenance for the fact that we observe the laws of the land and, uh, and, and shviyat. Okay, that's it, for, that's it for today. We have another story which we'll begin with next week concerning, again, a suit before Alexander with... Gavir Bem Sisa, this one with the Egyptians, and eventually we will find our way back to uh, our major topic, which is uh, the resurrection of the dead. And that's all for today. We'll see you next week at Kotov.